out there and welcome to the skinny on WMNF 88.5, your community radio station. I am Ben Montgomery. I'm typically joined here, of course, uh, at the 11 o'clock hour on Fridays by my friends, Ray Roa, uh, Creative Loafing's executive editor and uh, uh, and Mitch Perry, uh, the great Mitch Perry, who uh, is still up in Tallahassee. Uh, those fellas have left me once again. Uh, manning this show by myself, but I have great help here and great support uh, with the folks at WMNF. We've got a great show lined up here, uh, but some important topical news first, which I hope we can talk to our guest about later on. First, Governor Ron DeSantis on Thursday signed a bill eliminating a requirement for unanimous jury recommendations before judges can impose death sentences. Uh, the new law took effect immediately and represents a major change in Florida's death penalty system. Uh, SB 450 will allow death sentences to be imposed based on recommendations of eight of 12 jurors. Uh, used to take a, a, a unanimous jury uh, to recommend the death penalty. Judges would have to, the, the discretion to sentence defendants to life in prison after receiving jury, jury recommendations for death. And the Orlando Sentinel reports that lawmakers moved forward with the issue after Nicholas Cruz was sentenced to life in prison last year in the 2018 shooting deaths of students and faculty members at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. The life sentence came after a jury did not unanimously recommend death. We'll talk about that hopefully a little more later with our guest. But first, let me take you back briefly to uh, February 1987. That's 36 years ago. Um, Madonna's new single, Open Your Heart, is atop the charts. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the NBA's leading scorer. Ronald Reagan just vetoed the Clean Water Act. The Beatles are prepping to release their first ever compact disc. And in Lakeland, in Polk County, a 21-year-old transplant named Leo Schofield was pursuing his rock star dreams when his young wife, Michelle, went missing. She was later found dead in a phosphate mining pit. Two years later, Leo Schofield was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for the murder. It's a crime he has always denied. The story that prosecutors told, and this is important to understand what comes next, the story that prosecutors told, and they continued to tell, goes something like this. Newly married Michelle Schofield was supposed to pick up her husband from a friend's house after witnessing a, sh uh, uh, I'm sorry, after a waitressing, waitressing shift on the evening of February 24th, 1987. But she was late, and she hadn't called, and that infuriated her young husband of six months. This is according to prosecutors. He wasn't a choir boy. We know that their friends had witnessed Leo uh, scream at Michelle before, and there was some rough stuff. Uh, but now the story goes that Leo, Leo couldn't control his rage at the indignity of being made to wait on his new wife. And so back at the trailer they shared, he stabbed her 26 times, loaded her into uh, a sheet, uh, and then into their car, their Mazda station wagon. And then with the help of his father, dumped her body in a remote Lakeland Canal obscured by trees and bushes. Only Schofield was convicted, uh, only after Schofield was convicted were fingerprints found in the Mazda, the only prints found in the Mazda, and that they matched another man who was locked up for a series of heinous crimes, including murder. 15 years into a sentence, Leo learned that previously unidentified fingerprints, those fingerprints, uh, point to a guy named Jeremy Scott. At the time of the crime, Jeremy was a homeless teenager We'll learn more about him. He had an extensive history of violence. Now he's serving his own life sentence for a different murder. And he's recently given a detailed confession to the murder of Michelle 
Schofield. He confessed uh, on tape to our guest this hour and my friend Gilbert King, uh, who's the man behind the incredibly popular podcast Bone Valley, which tells a chilling story of murder and the miscarriage of justice. I binged it uh, just uh, this week once again, uh, nine hour-long episodes, and I am so full of outrage as I sit here that I can barely be still. Uh, you know Gil Gilbert, of course, from his books, including The Execution of Willie Francis, uh, Beneath a Ruthless Sun, and uh, 2008's, uh, sorry, 2012's Devil in the Grove about the Groveland Four, and of course, Lake County Sheriff Willis McCall, which won a Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction. There's a ton to get into in this case, uh, but let's start, uh, Gilbert, uh, by bringing you on, and um, let's play this, uh, this really quick clip about sort of how this project landed in your lap. And I just pulled my card out and wrote whatever I wrote on the back. After my talk, I was signing books, and the judge handed me his business card. On the back, he'd written the name Leo Schofield and his Florida Department of Corrections number, 115760. He also wrote, quote, not just wrongfully convicted, he's an innocent man. When I turned the card over, I saw the name, Judge Scott Cup. He nodded and told me to call him sometime. I held on to the card for a few days. I was unsure about whether or not to call. I hate disappointing people by telling them I can't pursue a story. But at the same time, I'd never gotten a tip from a judge before. So sitting in my office in Brooklyn one afternoon, I pick up the phone. It's the end of the day, and I'm immediately put through to Judge Cup. When I tell him who I am, his voice takes on a sense of urgency. He brushes off my small talk and gets right into it. He starts telling me about Leo's story, how in February 1987, when Leo Schofield was 21 years old, his 18-year-old wife, Michelle, was killed. Two years later, Leo was convicted of her murder. I wanted to find out what was collected from the cab to see if there was any right DNA here. evidence or fingerprints that could be run. One of the great things about doing... Ran a little far there, but uh, Gilbert, <laughs> welcome to The Skinny, WMNF. You've been here before. Yeah, and it's really nice to hear your voice again, Ben. Great it's, to be here. It's great to talk to you. Um, tell us about, uh, so you're a writer. <laughs> how, yeah. how did you become a podcaster? <laughs> I don't know, man. You know, it was one of those things I, uh, I thought I was going to work on the story as a, you know, writing it. I was going to write a long feature about it. Um, but, you know, most of the stuff that I write about is in, the, you know, the pre-civil rights area in the 40s and really just looking at documents all the time. I don't really get a chance to interview a lot of people. And, and, and when I started looking in this story from the 80s, you know, most of the people were still alive and they were willing to talk to me. And so I was like, just listening to the, the tape I was getting, I was like, wow. I'm not used to this. And, and these storytellers are really good. And so I just kind of decided like spontaneously to pivot over to a podcast and, and see if I could do it that way. Um, I'm, I'm really glad I did, to be honest with you, because I, I really do believe the intimacy of radio like this uh, is a, just a different way of hearing stories and, and hearing quotes as opposed to the sort of the dryness of, a, of the page. And so I just really wanted to see what I could do with it. Didn't know what I was doing, um, but it became an obsessive quest for me, as you can imagine. It happens to you, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. How, how, so structurally, did you have this sort of the system in place to like 
you know, get, get hook up quickly with a, with a podcasting uh, production studio and uh, connect with Kelsey? How did all that come to be? No, it, it was, it's really strange how it happened because Kelsey started out as a researcher and, you know, I, I had a couple different projects going at once and she was helping me with my book. And I remember I had like these three things going on and I said, I don't know, which one should I focus on right now? And I remember she said to me, well, it looks like there's an innocent man in prison. Like you should be doing that one. And <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's not a bad idea. Like the other stuff can kind of wait. Um, and so that was really the imp we didn't really know what we were doing at one point we decided that we were just going to get have to get a better tape recorder and so we picked up a better like a professional type of equipment kelsey learned it all and we were just sort of teaching ourselves as we went along um but you know the, the quality of the tape was getting good kelsey was like watching youtube videos and just kind of learning on her own and we figured that out and then after a while we really got into it and moved down there in the summer of 2019 and did most of our reporting. Uh, we, were, we were living in St. Petersburg and we just started driving to Polk County like every single day, setting up interviews and meeting with people. Um, and it just went on forever like that until we realized we had hundreds of hours of tape and then we had to start to figure out a story. <laughs> Tell us about Polk County. Why is it called Bone Valley? Tell us about the history of phosphate mining there and, and, and what's yeah, left Yeah, you know, honestly, this was new to me. I'd never heard of this before. Um, you know, why do they call it Bone Valley? Well, apparently, you know, this part of central Florida used to be underwater. And so you had all these like prehistoric mammals just dying at the bottom of the ocean bed, I guess. And so it, it all that like, you know, living beings and mammals down there and sort of made the area rich in phosphate and so when they started discovering this phosphate they they were digging up all these bones from like you know giant sharks and megalodons and 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 the region just became known as bone valley even though it's mostly a phosphate area um but it, you know is that is is there a better word for a true crime podcast than yeah, bone right. valley I mean, score <laughs> <laughs> made it work when yeah. did you when did you first meet leo uh, uh in person yeah, I remember it was like, I think it was like March of 2019. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the very first interviews we did because we were just trying to say, well, you know, this Judge Cup had sort of tipped us off and given us a lot of information about the case. And the more he was telling us and the more documents that he was pointing us toward, we started to get a good feel for this. And we said, wow, this really does look like a wrongful conviction here. Let's let's go meet Leo and, and, and hear him. And so that was like, you know, March of 2019. And you know, he was just very persuasive from the start. And yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you've experienced this before, but I've I've interviewed a lot of exonerated people mm -hmm. and met a lot of exonerated people, but I've never met someone who was still in prison. Um, but there's a certain naivety that a lot of these guys who were wrongfully convicted have. They just always tell the same story. Like, I had nothing to fear. I, di I didn't have to go get a lawyer. I knew that I had, I had the truth on my side. I just wanted to tell everybody what happened, and I was trying to be really helpful. And they all have this naive sense of, of just like, justice is going to work out. Don't worry. If you didn't do anything wrong, you don't need a lawyer. And, you know, after a while, it, 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 things can turn on you. And that's exactly what happened in Leo's case. And it's just an unbelievably tragic story about a wrongful conviction. Um, and you just realize this guy has been in 35 years in prison um, for a crime that he didn't commit. And he, you know, he never really had a chance to grieve his dead wife because almost immediately he became the subject of the uh, investigation. This becomes difficult for Leo because of one man, essentially, John Aguero. Who is he? 
Right. Well, he's like the, you know, no-nonsense prosecutor. He's very sharp, very smart, and very aggressive. And, um, you know, I think what happened was with this case, uh, it kind of stalled for a while. Um, there were, you know, many months were passing. They didn't have any suspects. There was no physical evidence that was pointing to Leo. So the, the, the detectives knew they didn't really have a case, and it wasn't coming together. And it was looking like it was going to go unsolved because, you know, Leo was cooperating, and he seemed to have an alibi that night. Um, but then John Aguero came in about, you know, about a year later and started looking at the case. And uh, I think he just sort of zeroed in on this and said, you know, all right, there's some fishy stuff going on here. Leo wasn't the greatest husband. The father was kind of weird. The father ends up being the one who finds the body um, of Michelle. And he tells people later on that uh, a vision from God kind of led him to the body. Um, and so they start zeroing in on him because that's a weird thing to say, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there's no evidence pointing to him either. So they just kind of go back to the son and saying, oh, yeah, well, he didn't have – he had a sort of a volatile relationship with Michelle. Let's put this together. And they start building a case against Leo. Uh, John Aguero has, um, has an interesting tie clip. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this is probably something that – it was just one of these little details, but I remember we were talking to Leo and he was telling us this story. And he said the first time he saw it, um, he, you know, he's originally from New England. And so he was up near Boston and that's when the police finally decided to come get him and extradite him back to Florida for this crime. And uh, Leo says, you know, I'm sitting on the airplane. And I look over at, at Aguero sitting next to me and I can see he's got this tie clasp on his tie. And as he leans in to look a little closer, it's a picture of old Sparky. Or, you know, it's an mm. a, a old Sparky, the Florida's electric chair on his tie. So he kind of knows, like, Aguero means business. And that's exactly what happened. John Aguero tried to put him in the electric chair. Was there a moment when you believed Leo? Uh, in other words, we, we come to these things with skepticism, right? Um, yeah. He's been convicted by a jury. Um, you've heard that, that he's innocent, but, uh, you probably brought, uh, brought your, your skepticism with you to that first meeting. Was there a moment when you thought, you know what? Everything points away from this guy. He's got to be telling the truth. Yeah, there really was. You know, I, I, I definitely was skeptical. I'm, I'm one of those guys, like, I don't know anything until I look into it myself. You know, like even listening to podcasts or watching documentaries, it's like there's so much information. You really, I'm just really cautious about this stuff. And even though I had a judge telling me, like, this guy's innocent, I can promise you that. It, it was, it was, that's a lot. But I really need to look at the documents and look at the case myself and really make up my own mind. And, you know, there's like this moment where, you know, Leo said to me, look, I'm, my life is an open book. I'm never going to lie to you. I'll never, my story never changes. And, you know, I'm looking at that. I'm like, you know what? His story never has changed. He's always told me things that have checked out. And then when I look at the state's case against him, that's where you see all the, the lies and the misinformation. I'm like, why is it that the state, you know, they're supposed to be, you know, pursuing justice, not just winning convictions. Why is it the states that are, the state is always twisting and misrepresenting the evidence? Leo's not misrepresenting evidence to me. He's coming out and clean and telling me, look, I wasn't the greatest husband. I, I, I'm embarrassed by it, but mm. I didn't kill my wife. Um, and then I realized that the state was the one that was not being truthful. And that really powered me on. I, I realized that Leo was, was really honestly, openly telling me the truth. And it helps to uh, to have another guy to point to, right? Uh, if the real killer is out there, and 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 if you're convinced that Leo is not the guy, uh, it sort of helps 
helps the whole situation. If you can oh. offer up to the cops a guy who actually might have done the crime, you yeah. come in contact with the story of a guy named Jeremy Scott. Tell us about him. Right. And, you know, this is like the, the really interesting part of it because I think, you know, Leo's case would just be an ordinary wrongful conviction. And that sounds horrible to say, but we see them so often now that they're they're in the newspaper constantly. You read about people who have been cleared from DNA, they weren't the right guy, or the, the witness, you know, finally said that I got it wrong, I lied to the police, all that stuff. And so I think Leo's case would have been just one of those wrongful convictions that, you know, he would have been no no chance for him because they didn't really have DNA back then and they didn't really preserve a lot of the evidence. So I think he would have just lingered in prison forever, except that 17 years into his sentence, he remarries a social worker at the prison. Mm. And the social worker becomes kind of obsessed with his case and starts looking into it. And she finds out that there's some fingerprints that were found in the car that Leo's wife, Michelle, was driving that were never identified. And she's obsessed with this. It takes her years. And she finally gets these fingerprints run. And they come back to a, a man, a young man who lived about a mile away from where Michelle's body was found, and he's killed several people. Um, he was an extraordinarily violent individual, extraordinarily impulsive, and he was in the area. And so all of a sudden, in, in, in 2004, these fingerprints come back and match Jeremy Scott. And so that's where the case really became really interesting to me. It's like, we set out, like, who is Jeremy Scott? Uh, and the remarkable thing about this, Ben, is that the state wasn't really interested in investigating him because they are, they felt they already had this conviction sewn up. Mm. And so all the effort that they should have spent investigating it and looking into Jeremy Scott was basically spent trying to defend the conviction of Leo Schofield, and they didn't really do any investigation into Jeremy Scott. So that's that's where Kelsey and I came in. And, in fact, didn't they try to sort of confirm Leo's conviction by encouraging Jeremy Scott to stick with the story that he had just stolen a stereo out of Michelle's car, resulting in leaving yeah. a fingerprint behind. Yeah, I've never seen a more incurious office by the way they investigated Jeremy Scott. They basically just pulled him in to the prosecutor's office, to John Aguero's office, because believe it or not, John Aguero prosecuted both Leo Schofield and Jeremy Scott. So John Aguero, the prosecutor, is now in charge of investigating Jeremy Scott. And so you can see the conflict of interest there. Like he's he's going to investigate this this you know new evidence and these fingerprints, but if he does it successfully, he's going to have to overturn one of his other convictions. Right. So something happened. He pulls Jeremy Scott into a closed-door meeting, no witnesses, no tape recorder, and Jeremy Scott comes out saying, oh, yeah, uh, I used to steal car stereos. That's why my fingerprints were there. And John Aguero said, I believe him. He's telling me the truth, and that was the end of that. Close the investigation. Um, and and so that that was where, you know, for years it sat like that. But then Jeremy Scott decides that he's going to confess. Uh, and he says that um, John Aguero offered to help him with his own parole because he was in prison for another murder. And so Jeremy went along with it and told the story thinking he was going to get some help. But when Aguero didn't help him, that's when he decided to come clean and, and confess to the killing of Michelle Schofield. Did that confession help leo's case no uh because you know Jeremy how is that <laughs> you think that like i said like they put all their effort into just destroying the credibility of jeremy scott so you know it, 
Jeremy Scott has confessed to four pe- killing four people. He is forensically linked to three of those crimes. Um, you know, we looked into these cases. They're obviously the, all the evidence points to Jeremy Scott, and he's confessed to them. But you know, the state is like saying, "Well, you can't believe a word he says. He's just a you know irresponsible." Like these aren't like jailhouse confessions that have no credibility. These are ones that he's actually forensically linked to. Mm-hmm. So the the whole state's position is preposterous, if you ask me. You guys uh, uh, interview bo- both Leo and Jeremy uh, in prison, and uh, along the line, you come across a startling discovery: new evidence that Jeremy could be responsible for yet another murder. Uh, a fourth one, one that has remained unsolved. And this is the murder of the cab driver uh, that another man has been tried for twice and uh, and exonerated or acquitted. Before you tell us about that incident, let's listen to another clip. This is you and uh, Kelsey hunting for evidence uh, in this old case. And you go to the Osceola County Clerk's Office. And we're not going to play the string of curse words you unleash after (laughs) your... After you, after you have this oh short meeting, but we're going to play right, right before that. Let's hear this part. I wanted to find out what was collected from the cab to see if there was any DNA evidence or fingerprints that could be run. One of the great things about doing research in Florida is the state's sunshine law that requires that all state, county, and municipal records be made available to the public. But we don't get off to a very promising start. After asking for the file, we wait for about an hour. And then they send down not one, not two, but three clerks to talk to us. Hello. Hi. I'm Gilbert King. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you very much. Donna Richardson. You're welcome. I am Shannon. Hi, I'm Susie. Nice Nice to meet you. you. This is uh, Kelsey. Hi. Nice to meet you. you Yes. Um, So um, you're interested in the Daniel Ott file. Right. Um, Donna is mispronouncing his name. But Daniel Odie was the man who was tried twice and was eventually acquitted of killing the cab driver, Joseph LeVere. It doesn't have the arrest affidavit. It's a partial file. So um, what's in here you are entitled to view. Um, I don't know if you want to... Donna shows me a slim file. It can't have more than 100 pages in it. Usually the clerk's office will turn over boxes of files with transcripts, police reports, and depositions. Thousands of pages. Again, this is all supposed to be public record, and I'm entitled to view all of it. Easiest or preferable. Um, I just want to look at it first and see what's in there. Because we're looking. These were two trials, two homicide trials. Mm -hmm. Usually there's like transcripts, um, notation about where physical evidence might be. Um, Since he was found not guilty, the yeah. physical evidence would no longer be available. And, and is it disposed or is it just not available to the public? It's the it this is infuriating me, and I'm trying not to show it. If Dan Odie really didn't kill Joseph LeVere, that means the murderer might still be out there. I can't understand why this isn't available and why the clerk won't tell me where I can find the information I'm looking for. Gilbert, I imagine this scene played out, uh, or this sort of scene played out quite a few times for, for you guys over three years. But I realize now in listening to this just how crucial a function of democracy it is uh, in terms of record keeping and giving citizens access to those records. It brings a balance to government 
It allows citizens, journalists, people like me and you to review cases like this. And when the information is not there, when we're prevented from uh, having access to this information, then we're, we're sort of hamstrung in terms of what we can see and what we can learn, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's one of the great things about Florida is that sunshine law. And usually in my in my research, I usually get a great deal of material. It's, it's much harder in other states. Um, so this was kind of infuriating to me because... You know, it is all public record, and they were kind of doling it out to me, like, oh, here's a few pages you can look at. And I'm like, where, where are you getting these rules? Because everything is available. I should be able to see all of it. Um, eventually, I did get all of it, <laughs> uh, but it took a while. But, you know, what's really interesting about this one is it was, I was going through a deposition that, that, that I found. It was about um, Jeremy Scott, and his girlfriend was being interviewed. And she basically said, there's a line in there that kind of just jumps out at me. She said, they asked if you know she if what other violent things that jeremy she had heard about jeremy and she said well jeremy told me that he once killed a cab driver when he was like 16 or 17 but that he'd gotten away with it and i remember you know there's nothing else about it it was just that one line and we started looking into unsolved taxi cab killings in the 80s in florida just as a you know we had nothing to go on and then we found this one in osceola county right over the polk county border and it was basically unsolved because the guy got acquitted twice and we started looking into it. And the more and more we looked into it, the more and more it pointed to Jeremy. Jeremy used to live in the same town, Intercession City. He, we, I tracked down his brother who said the brother remembered it. He saw, he remembered Jeremy talking about it once. And all this stuff was like, oh man, this might be the one. And then I started corresponding with Jeremy and I didn't even get a chance to ask him. He just blurted it out in one of his letters. He said, I can tell you all about the taxi cab driver in Intercession City. Mm. And I'm like, oh, man, he knows. And then sure enough, when we go down and visit him, um, I asked him about it. And he told this story about killing the taxi cab driver that was absolutely dead on. It matched everything we saw in the police reports and the trial transcripts, everything. And, you know, the crazy thing about it, Ben, I brought all that evidence to the Osceola County Sheriff's Office and they completely blew me off. They basically said, oh, well, first of all, that other guy got off on a technicality. So he was the right guy. And I remember thinking technicality, one of their star witness stood up in court and said, I'm being forced to lie by the detective. Um, I didn't see anything that night. This is all a lie. That's not a technicality. That's a major uh, moment in a trial that your case collapses. Right. And so they basically just blew me off and said, you know, Jeremy Scott's not reliable. We're not even investigating this. And, and so it, that just infuriated me. So I just went and did my own investigation. Um, I got to the point where Jeremy Scott was drawing maps of where he moved that night. Like he'd say, taxi driver body here. I ran here. He drew the maps. They absolutely match all the police reports that we've seen. So I have no doubt that he's also responsible for this murder. You're listening to 88.5 WMNF. This show is The Skinny. I'm Ben Montgomery. We're joined by Gilbert King, Pulitzer Prize winning writer of Devil in the Grove and several other very good books. And also the man behind, uh, half the team behind, uh, this very good new podcast, Bone Valley, uh, which tells the story of Leo Schofield, wrongly convicted, it seems, of murder in, uh, in Polk County, Florida. Gilbert, what were the challenges besides, uh, besides the records? What were the challenges that came up in this type of reporting? And I'm, I'm thinking specifically, um, you, you know, just to, 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 can you walk us through, like, identifying and connecting with and meeting Dan 
sorry, Mr. Odie. Yes. Yeah. This yeah, is not I mean, easy. <laughs> no, it really wasn't. It's it's also really hard because, you know, sometimes you get the phone numbers of people, but nobody picks up their cell phones, you right. know what I mean? And they just don't. It's just, you know, you leave messages and, and, you know, strange messages. I want to talk to you about that old murder case 30 years ago. I'm not sure I would answer that. You right. know, I mean, just don't right. want to deal with it. But we finally decided, well, we got to just drive out to his house and knock on his door because we, we, we just got to track him down. And, and we drive all the way out to East Polk County. And it's like, it gets really rural out there. And, you know, like one of the things you don't want to see when you're like trying to knock on doors is a big gate fence and like big dogs back there and then like ah i'm not going back there to knock on that door and so at that point we drove by his house and called and he did pick up this time and i explained you know who we were what we were doing and he said yeah come on over and uh we sat down with him and he's this this big hulking guy he's got six four like 200 something pounds he's he's really a large man and i realized that you know the description of Jeremy Scott with the cab driver. It was always like, you know, 5'8 to 5'10, 160 pounds. Mm -hmm. There's no way you're going to mistake the two of these guys. One looks like a linebacker. The other guy looks like, a, you know, a skinny kid. Um, but, you know, all the all the um, witness reports are describing the skinny kid as the guy who ran out of the cab. And so we sit down with Dan Odie, and honestly, it was just like talking to Leo. You know, it was the same thing. He's like, look, I didn't do it. People still think I did it. Anything you want to do, if you could get the DNA, if you could find out who really did this, it would mean so much to me because I think people still look at me and think I did this and I didn't do it. I wasn't raised that way. And you could just hear the same kind of sincerity that you hear from Leo or people who have been exonerated. They're like, they're welcome you to investigate their cases. They want to find it out. Like, and and he, dro if, he drops yeah. this tiny detail that, that sort of sums it all up for me. He said, my dad, who owns a scrapyard, sold all of his junk vehicles to hire me a lawyer because he said, I know you didn't do this. And like, I was just right. like, yeah, I get that. Like, that's that's um, a, gr a great detail, you know, that this expresses it, it really the whole thing. is. Yeah. And, you know, it's also like just hearing this big hulking man talk about the strain it put on his mother and how she had three strokes and she never thought she'd see him again. And, you know, it's that's tragic. a legitimate. Yeah, it is. And it's just like you realize that, you know, Jeremy Scott's actions in those two years, 1987, 88, really, there's so many victims that emerged from his actions. You know, Dan Odie, his mother has really bad health, ends up dying. Uh, Dan Odie spends six months in jail because he's accused of a crime that Jeremy committed. Uh, and it's just like this ripple effect of, 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 you know, destruction based on police not really doing the right thing and prosecutors not doing the right thing and letting, you know, these innocent people be charged with these crimes. Um, and that's when you realize like the criminal justice system, you know, is it leaves a lot of victim in, victims in its wake when it's not done correctly. And, and and I just felt really bad listening to Dan Odie because after all these years, you know, he's still like, you know, my life, you know, I spent six months in jail thinking I was going to go to the electric chair. It's terrifying for a teenager. Um, but that was the kind of story that we were really reporting on, just going into these places in central Florida and just meeting, you know, one person after another whose life had been like really damaged by Jeremy Scott. These people who were run through the ringer, they're not wealthy people. No, I mean, that's the thing. And you realize, here's the one thing I, I did learn about this was, you know, Leo Schofield, was fortunate in a way because he got in a car accident and broke his neck 
Um, he wasn't driving, but he had like this insurance settlement coming. Otherwise, he never would have been able to afford, you know, a private attorney. Well, it turns out Leo would have been much, much better off staying with the public defender's office in Polk County because they had a great public defender's office. Um, but instead, um, Leo sort of gets this money, this like windfall of money, and he his you know inmates at the jail are telling him you got to get you got to get this guy jack edmund and he's like jack edmund was like this flashy kind of you know shoot from the hip lawyer wore these western cut suits and left lifesavers on yeah, uh, right. on the bench and lifesavers on the defense table and yeah a whole exactly like a real southern character but didn't work you know. too hard in terms of learning the facts of the case right <laughs> no he, you know his whole style was like he didn't do any tre- pre-trial preparation didn't do any depositions or witnesses and he just said i'll just listen to what the witnesses stay and I'll, I'll cross-examine them and I'll do it with my charm, basically. Um, but, you know, probably would work in a couple kinds, certain kinds of cases, maybe, you know, a self-defense case. But when, you know, you're up against a prosecutor like John Aguero, who knows all the facts of the case and he's just really polished, really prepared, uh, Jack Hedman really didn't stand a chance against that kind of prosecutor. And, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, Leo was not well represented. And later on, Jack Hedman kind of fell on his sword and said, you know, I, I, I didn't... I didn't represent Leo uh, with any quality um, and basically, you know, said he was an incompetent counsel, basically. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it didn't, ma- it didn't mean anything because, like, all the lawyers in Polk County and judges, they're like, Jack Edmund, no, he's great. He's you know? a guy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't say he's incompetent. All right. <laughs> Leo's lawyers corresponded with, uh, with Jeremy Scott and sent a private investigator uh, in to talk uh, with with him in prison, um, and uh, this tape is interesting. I think we're going to play just just a little clip of Jeremy with Pat McKenna. If I got the name right, right. yeah, right, private investigator. Yeah, thanks. I hope they're not bringing this guy in, you know, just crazed or something. So in he walks. He's standing there. I'm sitting in a chair, and I remember just saying, "Man, you look a lot better than you did the last time I saw you." And he still won't sit down yet, but he sees on the table in front of me, I had laid out a letter from Andrew, the letter that Jeremy wrote, and I had tape recorder on on the table too. And we got to talk and I said, I just, I want to see if you'll talk to me about that case. He says, I don't need to. I told, I just told the judge yesterday and the prosecutors and everybody, I confessed to everything. I go, you confessed to everything? He said, yeah. Well, I didn't know he meant every murder that's ever happened in the county, just out of frustration, I guess. So I said, well, you know, we'll sit down. We start talking. I would introduce Jeremy Scott. Um, Jeremy, can you uh, raise your right hand? Do you swear that everything you're going to tell me is the truth and the whole truth? Yes, sir. Okay. I was going to go through the whole all kinds of question and answers. I said, Jeremy. I just wanted you to go ahead and just explain what happened that night. Um, with Michelle. This word's overused, but it became surreal for me. His whole body started to change, right? He he was twitching a little bit, and he just he quit looking at me, and he looked right at my dictaphone, my tape recorder, sitting right there. And he was leaning over it, and I just it was like he was unburdening himself or something. He was like talking just like a foot away from my dictaphone there, and I'm just kind of watching him. If you'd like to call in uh, to, to ask a question of Gilbert, uh, please dial us at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. About 19 minutes left on the show. Gilbert, um, did this confession that Pat McKenna got from Jeremy Scott help Leo's case? 
You, you would think it would. Um, you know, he confessed absolutely in detail. He had most of the stuff right. You know, it it was 30-something years ago, and, you know, he admits that he was drunk and popping pills that night. You know, so he gets the name of the gas station wrong on Cumbie Road. Um, you know, makes a little mistake. But the rest of the stuff is extraordinarily detailed. There's things that he should not have known um, that he did. Like and what? He described, well, I mean – First of all, we're dealing with a guy who has like less than an 80 IQ, so it's not. Is he a brain damage? Be, he got a he got a brain injury, yeah. right? He had it when he was like two or three years old. He apparently was like neglected as a child and ran out into the road and got hit by a car. And so they said he had some frontal lobe damage. A psychiatrist had had you know, and and he dropped out of school in like fourth grade, so he was pretty much illiterate. Um, so, you know, he definitely had his issues, but this is not somebody who's going to be sitting in the prison library studying old case files to right. make sure he gets a story right. You know, this is, this is a, a guy who can barely read. Um, and so, you know, he, he went through the whole night and I, I think there's one, one thing that's really interesting when I've done, you know, a lot of reading of transcripts about people in, you know, these kind of traumatic situations, whether they're a victim of a crime, a perpetrator of a crime, you know, child soldiers, those kind of things. And there's this one thing that kind of always jumps out at me is like people become very detailed about outside things, but like the actual acts of violence themselves, they kind of gloss over a little bit and they're, they're, they describe them a, a little more vagary. Mm. And I, and I, I think it's just some sort of self-protective measure that sort of kicks in that sort of blocks you from the trauma that you don't really want to go into it in deep because you don't want sure. to really say this about yourself. And I, I, I just noticed that a lot when I read a lot of these accounts of people who've done these kind of things, especially like child soldiers to read their accounts. It's really kind of interesting how that they can remember the beautiful skies that day. And then something really awful happens and it's just vaguely defined. Right. Um, and that was sort of the way I felt Jeremy had approached this. You know, he, he just gets you to this point where he's about to attack and then he just kind of like, you could fear his emotions go and he just kind of goes, ah, I lost it. And next thing I know, he's on to the next part about like moving the body. He doesn't really get into the actual stabbing part. Um, and and that, that's been a couple of times, even when I interviewed him in prison, he kind of went right by that as well. Mm. Um, but you know, he, he, he but describes, like but describes in detail, in great detail, the knife he used and where he procured it. Uh, yeah, a kid of also, one of his uncles, and uh, he described there being a compass on the end and the length of the blade, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and it's like it's it's a lot of those kind of little details. Like they, they came in twins, and I took one of them, right. and it had a compass on it. He doesn't even know what a compass is. He doesn't know the word for a compass. He just says it's got this thing on the end, north, south, east, west, and and there's a lot of kind of moments like that where he's very descriptive about things. And you know, one of the things that really jumped out at me was when he said after he killed Michelle, he um, decided to steal the car and start driving back to Kissimmee, which is where his family was. But he describes this moment where this car was, you know, found on the side of the road. It just kind of broke down while he was on his way on I-4. Mm -hmm. um, but he described this moment where he says, Michelle kind of panicked when she saw my knife and put the car in drive and started driving. And he said, I slammed the car into park and that stopped it. Mm. And so we talked to a couple of mechanics about that later on. They were kind of of a split opinion, but a couple of them did say, oh, that's a great wheel to, way to, to ruin a flywheel on one of those old cars mm -hmm. is jamming a car into, into park. And, um, and, and that's what happened to the car. Like it, it, the flywheel had come apart. Um, we didn't put that in the podcast because we couldn't really uh. confirm it, but a couple 
mechanics did tell us that, um, which, you know, that, how would he know that, you know, it's right. just one of those details and, you know, the car is broken down on the side. He describes how it was broken. So, That's you know, there's a lot of little things that he, he added that just sort of, you know, told us that he really knows about this case and, you know, it fits his pattern. He's confessed to these other murders, um, that he was there and he's forensically linked to them and he's forensically linked to Michelle's car. So I think the state is really the one that's really going with a stretch saying that he's just a car stereo thief who had really bad luck to steal a stereo from a woman who'd just been murdered a few minutes before, right? Exactly. Um, David writes in, uh, has Grady Judd weighed in on this? He actually uh, makes a little cameo in the podcast, doesn't he? Yeah, he, you know, it was so funny because like really no, once people found out what we were doing, no, no one really wanted to talk to us from the Polk County Sheriff's Office. But, you know, Grady Judd did. He invited us into the office. He's and, never not wanted to talk. <laughs> you know, I said to him, I said, look, I really need you to put your historian's hat on here. Like, like, and I really want to go back into the eighties and get your take. And he was like, I can do that. You know, I used to teach at a community college, criminal justice. I can put on my historian's hat. And he really, I think he really relished in the opportunity to talk about policing in the 1980s before, you know, you had cell phones and cameras and, and DNA. It was really going back to the roots. And I think he really enjoyed talking about of that. So he was, he was really interesting to just talk about what a mess the Polk County Sheriff's Office was back in the day. And, you know, he said, you can tell it was a mess because I was basically running it and I didn't know what I was doing. I was in my 20s. <laughs> mm. Call us at uh, 813-239-9663. A few minutes left in the show. Email us at dj at mnf, uh, sorry, wmnf.org. Uh, just, just reading an email, someone points out, a reader points out the area around Combe Road is very poverty stricken. I bet most folks in Tampa have never seen the abject poverty pockets in Polk County. Is that true? Yeah, it really was. You know, and, and I, it, one of the things that you know, we were there and, you know, talking to somebody and they were, we were interviewing him and he, he just said, it's going to be hard to do this interview because you're going to, all these cop cars are going to be going by all the time. And mm. boy, was that true? I'm just like one after another, just flying up Cumbie Road. Um, yeah, it was, it, it was definitely an eye-opening experience because um, I'd done a lot of research in, you know, in, you know, inner cities and all, all over the place, really. But I, it was really my first time going into parts of Polk County and just seeing that kind of like poverty and, and, and seeing like, you know, so many of the people we talked to from back in the day, they were like, you know, young girls, 13, 14 and having like their second child. Mm. Um, and so you just sort of saw this and, and just, it was eye opening. And that was the world that Leo was living in with his young wife. Mm -hmm. And it was also this, you know, really not too far away, Jeremy Scott living in his grandmother's uh, mobile home. I listened to Gilbert's podcast a few months ago and found it fascinating, says a fan of yours. Um, Gilbert, May 3rd is an important date. What's going yeah. on? What's the, listen in everyone, what's the latest in this? Yeah, this is actually really huge because, you know, Leo has exhausted all his appellate um, you know, options at this point. He's, there's nothing more to do. Uh, the, the courts have ruled that the, the new evidence that has been brought in, Jeremy's fingerprints and his confession um, is not credible, apparently. So he doesn't have any more options there. What he has is parole. Um, he was sentenced to 25 years to life and he served 35 years. So he's had um, three parole hearings and he was denied every time. And the reason he gets denied is because the state attorney, Jerry Hill, former state attorney, basically shows up and says, Leo Schofield has never apologized, never said he's sorry for killing his wife. So Why should belong. Jerry Hill care, Gilbert? This wasn't his case, was it? Yeah, 
I mean, he was there in the beginning, so technically it was his case. He's, he was in office for 30-something years. Um, but he has this role with the state attorney's office where he shows up at parole hearings and basically just argues against parole. Um, and his, his philosophy, which he's mentioned before to the, um, to the press, was that you know the job's not finished until everybody serving a life sentence has actually served that sentence. So he doesn't want to see anybody paroled. And so he argues against uh, Leo's parole. Um, but May 3rd is Leo's fourth parole hearing. Um, and you know this time, there's a lot of people who now are familiar with this case, who believe that Leo was wrongfully convicted, who believe that Jeremy Scott is the murderer. And there's a lot of eyes on the state of Florida to see if this is the time that they finally say, look, this man has been a model inmate. He's a leader in the prison, educated, does every single program. He's a mentor. Uh, he's served much more than his minimum. And he's got a claim of innocence that is a legitimate claim of innocence. And it, he will not ever apologize because it says it would dishonor the memory of his wife, Michelle, mm. if he was to confess to a crime that he didn't commit. Um, and so he won't do that. Um, so everyone is mm. sort of hoping that with eyes of, of the eyes of the world on this, that this will be the time that Leo finally gets paroled. The, uh, are the eyes of the world on this? Yeah, I have to say, you know, there's been, I think this podcast has been downloaded now, like, well over six million times. Incredible. Leo tells me, I know it's it's shocking to That's me fantastic. actually, but he Leo tells me he gets letters every day from around the world. You know, Ireland, Indonesia, uh, uh, New Zealand. People just writing him, praying for him, and saying that they believe that he's innocent. Um, and and so that has lifted Leo's spirits a lot because he said, you know, all along the state's narrative has carried the day. Like you know. Leo's this violent person. The state was able to get him convicted. And then Jeremy Scott is not credible. Um, and they got the right guy. And and that narrative has carried the day for decades. Uh, but now that, you know, we did our investigation into this case, uh, he feels like now there's a lot more people who know the truth. What can interested people do? And I imagine Jennifer Kaiser, who just emailed us, is interested. She says, I've listened to the Bone Valley podcast it was very good. Makes me wonder, where is the justice in the justice system? Best of luck, Leo. How can people like Jennifer help Leo? Is that even possible? Well, you know, we have this uh, petition that uh, Leo's lawyers have um, put up at the Innocence Project. Um, it's at change.org. And it's basically recommending or asking that the state attorney in uh, the Tenth Circuit move this case for an independent review to any any prosecutor's office that has a conviction integrity review unit, transfer it over there and give it an independent review. Um, I've been through this before. I've, you know, I will hand over all my files and any, any conviction integrity review unit that wants to take a look at this case, I'll participate and show everything I have interviews. I think that if, if any office looks at this the way we did, I think they would have to come to the same conclusion that we did, that Leo was wrongfully convicted. I think Really, the only people I know who are really buckling down and, and maintaining this are the people in the 10th Circuit who are from that prosecutor's office who just, you know, they, they are motivated to not overturn this conviction. They don't want this. They don't want an independent review. Um, they basically say the, the courts in Polk County have spoken and uh, this case doesn't deserve any more uh, examination. Um, but aside from that, I have prosecutors on every side of the political spectrum, judges, uh, attorneys who have looked at this, and they all really come to the same conclusion that we have, that Leo's an innocent man. 
How how is uh, can you tell listeners how Leo is doing through all this? Uh, I I feel like um, in the experience of listening to the nine episodes in this interesting podcast, you one really comes to care deeply about Leo. And Leo gives us all often the impression that he's making it. He's just doing everything he can do and has been for a very long while and, and, and you know, uh, 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 doing everything possible to make himself a better citizen on the inside, um, including taking classes. And uh, he's gotten several uh, uh, graduate degrees or college degrees. Um, but ha- how is he right now? You know, I would say right now his his spirits are kind of lifted. Um, you know, he does feel that the momentum has changed and that, you know, that more and more people are writing to him and, and telling him they believe in him. He's never had that before. Um, so he, he, he does take the way, the way those really positive, uh, all that feedback is really helping him, um, the, the support and everything. But there, there's definitely times where he has his moments where, you know, I think like sometimes when he just reads something in a newspaper saying, you know, from the state that says we got the right guy, uh, that just triggers him because he knows it's not true. Mm-hmm. And and he, he takes these things extraordinarily personally, which you can imagine. This is your whole life on the line. And, you know, everything involving your case, you know, he's leading up to this parole hearing, which is in a couple of weeks. It says it, it's all he can think about. Like this could really change his life. He could actually walk out of prison and it's hanging there. And his fate is really in the hands of these three commissioners with um, the Florida Commission on Offender Review, basically the parole board. Um, and so it, he knows it's like he's got a moment coming up uh, May 3rd that, you know, is going to determine the rest of his life. And I don't know, honestly, you know, if, if he was to just be denied again and and, and be go- sort of given the signal, like, come back in three years and we'll look at this again, I'm, I honestly don't know how he'd get through that. Uh, it would be a tremendous loss. And everybody sort of feels like, regardless, it's time for him to come out of prison. He spent enough time there. Um, you know, he should be he should be released at least. Uh, forget about exoneration right now. So I think he's just really trying to grapple with this and 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 you know his mood swings are really, you know, as I could imagine, like go from despondent to hopeful, um, uh, uh, almost like on a daily basis. What are your questions? Uh, so John Aguero died in uh, 2017. Am I right? Correct. Yes. What are your questions for him? If you've had him? Oh, uh, you know, I would love to know why a prosecutor who has prosecuted both Leo Schofield and Jeremy Scott um, goes into an office without any witnesses, without a tape recorder, and s- starts interviewing Jeremy Scott. Um, why would a prosecutor do that? What rules are in place? Because if Jeremy Scott had confessed, um, then John Aguero becomes a witness, and there's no you know way to back that up with tape recording or anything. So it, it was a completely, in my opinion, a very unethical thing to do. And I don't think a state attorney's office should allow prosecutors to do that kind of thing, to go into an office with someone who's a witness to a murder who may have information uh, about that murder, may confess to that murder. Uh, I would like to ask him about that. I, he claims that he offered Jeremy Scott immunity. Um, but, you know, I looked through his statements and some of the things he said you know, on the stand. And, you know, he talks about uh, at one point a concurrent sentence. Well, 
that's not immunity. You're, you're, you're saying under oath that you, you were willing to offer Jeremy Scott immunity if he would give you information on this case. Mm. But then in another statement, he says, I offered him a concurrent sentence. So I don't think John Aguero was being truthful. He definitely lied under oath about having witnesses um, in that meeting. Um, and so I would like to ask him what his, what, what his intention was to go in there with Jeremy Scott without a tape recorder and without a witness. What were you trying to accomplish in there? And if you have a question for Gilbert, call us at 813-239-9663. Just a few minutes left in this show. Send an email to dj at wmnf.org. Of course, you're listening to The Skinny on WMNF with Gilbert King, who's behind the Bone Valley podcast, which you can listen to on lavaforgood.com and download anywhere it looks like that podcasts uh, are available. Uh, plug it in and give it a listen. Um, Gilbert, um, Tell us if this has a life as something besides a podcast. What is, uh, where do you, what, what do you do with this um, if and when you get an ending? Yeah, great question. I don't know. You know, when Judge Cup first approached me, I remember he said, you got to write a book about this case. Yeah. And I remember I told him I was doing a podcast instead. And he was like, what is a podcast? I don't even know what a podcast is. Like, I need something I can hold in my hands. Like, what do you mean you're doing a podcast? Um, and so he was very upset about that for many, many months. I don't think he fully understood. Um, but I started to send him, when we started getting these episodes done, I, I sent him some of the rough cuts of them. And he was like, oh my God, this is so much more powerful than a book. Uh, so it was like, just so great to see that in him finally coming around. I'm not sure that I'll, uh, you know, I, I've thought about an idea of a book, but there's there's part of me that believes that it's a more powerful format mm. for this kind of case. So I don't know if I'll ever write a book on it. I know that there's definitely some TV people that are interested in like doing a series about this. And so we've had some conversations about that. Um, and I think, you know, if Leo eventually wants to go on to become exonerated, it really wouldn't hurt to have, you know, more people familiar with this case. Um, and so that's one of the things we're thinking about. But um, and, and I may write a book and maybe I've talked to Leo about maybe him writing something about it, too. So we're, 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 I haven't really decided um, because we're still really working on this podcast, believe it or not, like that we're kind of cover this. Um, we're going to cover this parole hearing in, on May 3rd. And so, you know, maybe that'll be the happy ending that we've all hoped for. Thank you so much for your work on this, Gilbert, and for bringing it to us. We're a little too late to take the calls. I'm so sorry for the people who are hanging on the line, uh, but we got to go here on The Skinny on WMNF. You've been listening to Gilbert King talk about his podcast, Bone Valley. Give it a listen and pay attention on May 3rd to figure out what happens, whether justice is actually found in the case of Leo Schofield. Um, and uh, thank you so much for tuning in to The Skinny I'm Ben Montgomery for WMNF signing off. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ben.